Hello and welcome to the Ellen Finance Club CareerCast. In this podcast, we take a look at the potential careers opened up by pursuing your finance education. I'm your host, James Dudden, and today we'll be talking with Bert Schaefer, who had a career in currency trading and currently works at the Weston Career Center. If you enjoy the podcast or are interested in learning more about finance, consider joining the Ellen Finance Club on Wigo, LinkedIn, or WeChat. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm joined here today with Bert Schaefer, who's a member, a new member of the WCC, but I think it would be better if, Bert, you just give us a little bit of a background about yourself. Sure. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to have a discussion with you today, share a little bit about my background and and maybe some of the views around the current marketplace, what skills are valuable and how people can have a successful career within the, the finance side of things. My background is I, I've had a career in the capital markets or really the sales and trading side of the business um, for the past, well, 28, 29, 30 years. So an overall 30-year career within the finance side of things. I started out coming out of undergrad with a BA in economics and worked for a regional bank in Philadelphia. I'm from Pennsylvania originally. It got me an exposure to the finance world from the sense that I got much more interested in it and I was able to define a few of the career paths within that finance side of things. Prior to that, I knew I liked finance. I knew I was interested in numbers. I liked that aspect of things, but I wasn't really sure what all the career paths were. Once I was able to look at a little bit more on the capital market side in particular, so that that opportunities within both a buy and a sell side, so an asset management side and a sales and training side, I really wanted to try and transition into a bigger role at a larger institution, a little bit more of a, a global or, no, or national brand. And I thought the best way for me to do that was through a full-time MBA program. So I, I did transition into a full-time MBA program and it, and it helped me in a, in a number of ways. It helped me at, in that transition to a, a bigger platform and entry level into training programs. It turned out to be in New York City. That's where Obviously, a lot of finance jobs are. They can transition into any um, city or metropolitan area within the within the U.S. or the world, for that matter. Um, but I happened to transition into uh, into New York. But it also gave me an exposure to career paths within within finance. Going in, I was focused a little bit more on that buy side role. Uh, Peter Lynch at Magellan was one of the one of the heroes at the time. Going into uh, business school and then that sort of puts the time frame in in perspective um, but at the same time that buy side of the industry was where a lot of people were looking to go my thought process trying to move into a, tr- a career in sales and trading was I like the aspect of being in the middle of the marketplace and particularly my entire career has been within an OTC product world where you're not going to a market, you're not going to a market maker per se, but you're going to banks and industry professionals that talk to all different kinds of customers. In my career, I was in uh, currency derivatives on the risk management side, risk management structuring side. I talked to large, major international corporations, middle-sized corporations, individuals looking to hedge, hedge funds looking to take advantage of their view of currencies and currency volatility, as well as just asset managers hedging international bond portfolios, for an example. So I like being able to sit in the middle 
and talk to all these different customers. Now, my view at the time was I'd probably do that for, I don't know, five years or so, and then transition to the buy side. And 30 years later, I was still on that sales side, building a lot of those relationships, following the marketplace and, and learning quite a bit. So the MBA helped me transition into that side of things um, from, from that perspective. I, I guess the other aspect that I can add from a sales and trading side is even from a trading and risk management perspective, some of the best traders out there, particularly in that seat, were good communicators. They were good salespeople. They were effective at risk managing for sure, their asset class that they're in, but they're also very effective in understanding the complex marketplace that they operated in and translating that and communicating that to the, the franchise that we worked with. So that was some of the things that I enjoyed really and how I got into that aspect of sales and trading overall. La last thing, James, is some of my professors within the business school environment influenced me tremendously. And Bob Jarrow and Peter Carr in particular got me an exposure to the derivative product itself. And so when I went into uh, sales and trading, I really wanted to work within the derivative space. I like that multidimensional, that that nonlinear aspect of the challenge of working with a derivative product. And from my perspective, just being exposed to it at the MBA level really catapulted me into that product set for my uh, for my career. Yeah, you actually just answered one of the two questions I had in the back <laughs> of my head. So the first was going to be, what did you do before the MBA? And then the second was, what got you into to derivatives trading? But obviously, you just answered that. So what, what were you doing before your MBA program? Yeah, no. Uh, so I, as I said, I was at a regional bank in in Philadelphia, and I started out in the audit department. I did have some summer experience um, in college as a as a bank auditor, like a regional bank auditor. So that got me transitioned into the door, and then I did network my way into a securities department within this bank in in Philadelphia. That area within securities, we were simply investing excess bank funds within different parts of the fixed income curve, as well as some equity investments for the pension side of things. But it, it really gave me exposure to following markets, investing in markets, and trying to understand them a little a little bit more. Got it. And now, a question I definitely have, and I think could be very interesting for the students here, is if, you, if maybe you could just walk us through what it's like working on a trade floor. Uh, and then also maybe kind of the evolution of the job, because obviously how it was when you started is very different than how it is now. But maybe just what was it like when you started and, and just kind of walk us through the, the job itself? Sure. No, absolutely. So the, the concept of the trading floor is that the close proximity facilitates all the communication that's needed across um, liquid assets, across derivative assets across sales desks to customers, as well as across different asset classes themselves. So a lot of the markets do tend to have some sort of correlation trading off of each other. So just being in the same vicinity in an open air environment facilitates uh, communication within the trading floor itself. Now, when I first started, and I would say for the first I don't know, half of my career, the dominant form of communication was really the telephone and communicating through voice, 
whether it was through customers, whether it was across the trading floor or um, with any someone even within your team or globally that has since transitioned to and and the Bloomberg system has had quite a bit to do with it transition into a lot more chat communications as well as a lot more transactions that we can get into that occur on electronic platforms. So anything that historically had a marketplace, so equities, for example, that traded on New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, those were things that were able to be electronified a lot sooner because there was a common market for them, as opposed to a lot of these other OTC markets that still to this day have an opportunity to be a little bit more consolidated. But there is more and more of those trades that are happening both electronically and or in chat rooms and less and less on telephone communication. Personally, it doesn't mean that relationships aren't important within the aspect of things, but the electronification of a trading floor has ha- has st- slowly taken um, taken place. And in my view, there's still plenty of more room to uh, to continue that electronification, if you will. Yeah, and with the digitization of the of the trade floor, how is the skills that these companies have been hiring, or I guess the skills that they're hiring based are their hiring is based upon certain skills. How have those changed, uh, as, kind of as your career had progressed? Sure. So, so the the skills definitely have changed, and and I would say also within capital markets, and I I'll, I'll refer to capital markets and sales and trading probably interchangeably, but. Within that sales and trading environment, there's so many different skill sets that are valuable. There are roles that are for pure programmers. There are roles that are for someone that wants to be almost an advisor to a corporation around their debt issuance or their um, foreign exchange hedging program. There's all different kinds of roles within there. So the skill sets almost run the full spectrum as well. So yes, the skill sets have certainly changed and they've become more quantitative, more statistical oriented, and more comp side, let's say, oriented, where a programming skill has become a much more valuable asset to have within a capital markets, asset manager, trading floor type environment. That doesn't mean that 99% of people are going to sit around and program in Python. But in my view, what it does mean is if you can yourself program in Python, A, you may use it some during your job, which is very valuable to have. But also I liken it to learning a foreign language. And if you know Spanish and you go on vacation to Madrid, it's super helpful. The same way that if you know Python or C++ and you can code and you can talk to the people that are programming 100% of the time and translate what's needed from the front office, it's super helpful. And your skill set and your value to the firm that you're working at is just magnified overall from that perspective. Okay. And do you feel that in the future, the human element is going to be less and less and, and more of the processes will be automated? Do you see... I mean, because I know there's just there's a ton of high frequency trading, a lot of just AI based, quantitative based, purely numerical trading. Do you see a, a role where it really becomes some firms are exclusively going to use 
their their programs to make trades or is there always going to be a human element that will be involved yeah no good question and i would i would say there's two aspects to that where there's definitely a need for human element and um, a proper place for it and one is just in relationships and trust I think when we're interacting with each other and we're trading on each other's platforms, particularly in an OTC marketplace, that aspect of are you going to use um, are you going to use my standalone trading systems or are you going to interact with me in an OTC marketplace, whether it's electronically or not, based on what do I bring to the table? And a lot of these assets that we're selling are pure commodities. They're a pure number on a screen that almost anybody can get access to that liquidity. But for me, if as a salesperson or as a bank or as a trader, how would I want someone or how would I entice someone to trade with me? Well, it could be because of costs. It could be from a prime brokerage account. It could be from better research that I can provide them. But in the end, it also could be because they trust me. They know me. They know that if there's any price that they deal on, they're going to get the best aspect of that transaction that I can deliver for them. And if there ever is a problem, that I'm going to look out for their interests overall. So that relationship aspect of a transaction, I think, is still going to be very, very important um, overall, is is what I want to say. So the percentage of trades that are going to be executed on an electronic platform definitely will increase as we go forward, but that relationship aspect of it, I feel um, probably won't go away on any, any time soon. Okay. And then to dive a little bit deeper into the relationship aspect of the job, would you say early in your career, you're building relationships later in your career, you're building, what does, what does the relationship building look like? Is it you're spending maybe two hours of your day just on the, on the phone, making new connections? Are you kind of just continually talking to the same people? And then over the course of a career, you're just making strong connections? Like, I guess I'm just trying to get a picture of what that looks like. Sure. No, I I think it's a little bit of a little bit of both where yes, almost from day one, you're building relationships within your own firm, but then you're also building relationships within the marketplace. And if you're a new person, you just got out of a training program and you're a junior on a desk, more than likely, you're building relationships with juniors at other banks in the marketplace, other asset managers around your peer level. And as you all advance within your career, before you know it, you'll, you could be a senior trader or a senior salesperson that has 10 to 15 to 20 contacts that you've developed throughout your career. So that's that's definitely one aspect of it. But then there's another one where you're introduced to and you're meeting people because you're also a trusted resource within your firm and you're connecting with them because as I highlighted earlier, as an OTC market specialist, you get to sit in the middle of this marketplace itself and talk to all different kind of customers and see all different kind of flows and reactions in the marketplace. So you are the best source of knowledge and information in that sales and trading aspect of things. So from that perspective, you're building them throughout your career, but then you're also develop, developing them, sorry, as, as you go on. Okay. And, and there's something that I've kind of noticed uh, thematically here, which is 
you're really bringing up that to, to be in this job, you have to have a good understanding of the quantitative side. You have to have the people skills. And those aren't always usually skills that people have in common or, or in their toolbox, right? Some people are heavily quantitative or really good with people, but not necessarily both. So going into this career, would you say you should be more of a well-rounded person? Would you say if you're strong on one side or the other, you could probably figure out the other side? What What's kind of the development like within a firm once you get there? And, and what are the firms looking for when they're when they're making hires? Right. No, no, good, good question overall. And and there isn't one straight answer, James. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Firms, when they're making hires, whether it's an individual hire or into a training program, they're looking to be um, well-rounded in, let's say, in a training class overall. So they are looking for some individuals that are going to do 90 to almost 100% of coding. But then there are also going to be other people that are going to do that more advisory work, that more relationship, long-term relationship-driven sales aspect of things. There's also the, I would say, more hybrid where you're transacting quite a, a number of times a day. It's a very fast-paced marketplace, and you might be looking for people that have that intensity or that that matches their quantitative skill set to bring that on, on board. So it's not necessarily that if you don't have quantitative skills, you're not going to get hired. If you don't have the softer relationship-driven skills, you're not going to get hired. But I would say that you always need to be learning. You always need to be working on your weaknesses and you always need to be developing. You do need to bring something to the table. And if that is programming skills or that is relationship-driven skills, some of the best people that I worked with within capital markets were history majors. And what they could bring to the table was this understanding of a global perspective of macroeconomics. They also had to be very quantitative at times to be able to translate that into a successful job day to day, but they didn't necessarily graduate with a math or a comp sci degree. Okay. And then just last question here, job specific, what would you say would be the best way for a student to prepare for a career in this field? Sure. I, th I think that for capital markets or sales and trading, I think the number one reason or the number one way to prepare is just to make sure that you're really staying on top of the markets. And that means you're watching CNBC, you're reading the Wall Street Journal, you're joining the Olin Finance Club, you're staying on top of the finance industry. What companies want to try and avoid is hiring what they may deem some of the best candidates only to find out a year or two later that they really don't like finance and they spent all this investment training them and then they go on to do something else. By demonstrating a genuine interest in finance, that gives you an advantage from day one, A, and B, it gives you something to talk about. Inevitably, you're going to be asked about the markets within an interview space within a sales and trading or capital markets or asset management view and how you would approach. Where would you invest right now? Those types of questions, if you don't have an answer, the interviewer more than likely is going to question what kind of real investment does this person want to make within the industry and how much investment do we want to make? I, I did mention the, the quantitative 
stats and programming skills. If you haven't taken that, you don't necessarily have to take it in a formal environment. It's great if you can, but there's plenty of online classes as well, just to enhance your own skill set and, and learn on your own. Always adapting and learning is a great asset to uh, to be able to demonstrate as well, because I, I do feel that's part of the part of the job and part of the um, success factor that you're going to have within the finance world. And then just work on your, your soft skills, working on your networking, working on your presentation skills. All of those aspects are only going to add to the value that you're going to bring to the company and then the career trajectory that you're going to be able to have. Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's really good advice. And now I want to kind of transition because, I mean, 30 years in finance, you have, a, I would assume, just a ton of fantastic stories. And, and just to get us started here, that means you were in investment banking during the Great Recession, could you just talk a little bit about what was going on? Um, I mean, just any story, anything that you feel like would be really interesting uh, for the club to hear. Sure, I mean, there's there's plenty of there's plenty of stories out there, not just the the Great Recession. I I have plenty of career stories, um, but focusing on that 0809 period because it was so, I would say unique. I. I was in fact at Lehman Brothers in 07 and transitioned to Bank of America at that time. The interesting part from a capital markets that most people don't realize is when you read about um, headlines and the Great Recession, we read about equity markets selling off and people losing all this money. In fact, from a sales and trading standpoint, 08 and 09 were record, well, they were probably eclipsed, eclipsed by COVID years, but record profitability years from a bank's market-making standpoint. Now, from an asset manager, it's either sometimes they did really well and sometimes they did really poorly. But from a bank standpoint, they were super profitable years. And if you take a half a step back and you think about it, particularly something like foreign exchange, if the currency pair isn't going to move at all and there's no volatility, there's not much incentive for anybody to execute their hedges. There's no urgency. There's no opportunity for hedge fund managers to trade in it if it's not going to move. We had in 08 and 09 the exact opposite of that, where we had extreme movement in currencies and a lot of volatility and therefore a lot of potential for people to move in and out of the marketplace to take advantage of that or to hedge out of necessity or to lock in profits overall. So much higher volumes, much higher transaction transactions, and then a wider bid offer spread as well on top of it makes it an overall profitable year. So liquidity is down, but from a market making seat, that extra volatility encourages more volume, like I said, out of, either necessity or out of uh, opportunity as well. So it's a, it's an interesting uh, standpoint as well. Currencies themselves as an OTC market, they don't have an open or a close. They kind of have this unofficial open in New Zealand Monday morning and then a close at five o'clock Friday on, on a New York uh, afternoon. But other than that, they're trading 24 hours. And so that liquidity at times was an interesting one to try and um, capture when we're moving from center to center around the globe. 
and headlines get get moved around. You'll see oftentimes when the equity market in the U.S. sells off, what does Asia do? The equity market sells off as well, just because. It doesn't mean, it just means that we have a very, very global interconnected marketplace. And I guess that's something I probably should have mentioned when we talked about just the trading floor in general, how much more global and interconnected the information flow really is today than it was even when I when I started from. Yeah, I mean, I guess because you maybe just address that a bit. So I guess what was it like then when you started as far as the, the you know, the information flow and, and how did you or was there any key moment when it finally evolved or how did you see it evolve over time? No, I, I don't think there was a key moment. And being in currencies, there was always a global element to it. But what you would see is there was much more interdependent around um, the fixed income marketplace, equity marketplace and how they would follow each other. And, and I guess as we started going towards more global markets everywhere and not just within foreign exchange, but within an equity space and futures started trading and after hours started trading, those aspects tr transitioned things into more and more of a global marketplace, if you will. And you could always see before you came down, okay, well, what is the futures project the Dow is going to open? Because it's already trading and there's always an indication there where in the past, I guess when I first started, it was more like, okay, what's our guess? It's going to be up 1% or the markets were down globally. They're going to be down 1%. What's our, what's our projection on that? And now we have much more of a indication from the futures market of, of where we're going to trade. So that, that's definitely it. But then just information flow and communication, the advent of things like um, Twitter, for example, posting news headlines on a continual basis, really on a live stream basis, changes that dynamic and it evens the playing field so that someone sitting at home trading can get that same Twitter feed and be at less of a disadvantage than they are against a professional investor that might be able to have and pay for different information feeds um, globally overall. Yeah, no, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. That, that's that's really interesting. I haven't I hadn't even thought of Twitter as a potential tool for at home <laughs> traders, but no, that makes a lot of sense that you say it. So the Great Recession is obviously probably one of the the bigger financial events on the front of the minds of current students. I mean, as well as obviously the the big swings that were caused by COVID. But was there maybe a period of time where there was a ton of volatility? You felt like you were just constantly on the floor, keeping keeping everything together. That Maybe it has gone under the radar. You feel like people should study more closely. Um, absolutely. I mean, there's there's probably plenty of them. Maybe the first ones that come to mind would be Brexit, and and how that affected obviously a currency marketplace, but then the spillover effect to a lot of other markets from equities to fixed income overall, and how. To me, I guess the year before Brexit, there was the Scottish referendum that was really close but didn't happen. Maybe that should have been a wake-up call to a lot of people. I don't think it was enough. Brexit definitely was. And then we, we followed that up with the election of Donald Trump as well, which changed dynamics around the political scape, uh, landscape, but then also around the economic landscape and how these markets are interacting overall um, and how we honestly, from now on, how do we look at elections and how do we look at these events that are set in calendars 
how do we look at forecasting? And I think a lot of people are look, trying to figure out how to really forecast elections a little bit better than we, what we have in the past. Okay. And then and from each major event to the next, would you say there's different lessons learned that make you a better trader overall? Or would you say, you know, each lesson so unique that it's almost impossible to, to utilize skills that you had to do during the great recession versus when Trump first got elected or during Brexit, I guess just, you know, do, do you grow stronger through each major financial event or do you just have to kind of roll with the punches and, and just become better at your job and, and, yeah, and kind I, of lean on skills that you have in general? No, fair question. I, I, I do think you learn something from, well, hopefully from every day, but certainly from a lot of these events that happen and the changing landscape. And you're learning whether it's from a political standpoint, from a macroeconomic standpoint, from a market standpoint for sure, or even a regulatory standpoint, how things are changing and affecting your day-to-day job. But I do, I do think that to some extent, each one is unique and you'll have to look at the specific liquidity, the specific drivers, and what are the threshold, the pain thresholds and the, and the main points in each of those aspects. So yes, there's always lessons learned, and I think it's almost like when you're a, a sports coach and you want to go back and look at game film, you kind of want to take something away, but next week's a different opponent and and, and you really need to maybe apply some of those, but you're going to have to adapt to the new environment that, that you have going forward. Got it. And, and what do you think um, maybe is a skill that someone who isn't interested in trading could learn from a professional trader? You know, what's something that maybe be applicable to any job? Uh, and within finance, yeah. The, so the hardest thing as a uh, as a trader, in my in my view, is to know when you're know when you're wrong and accept that you're wrong. And some of the best traders out there, they might only be right, well, certainly less than fifty percent of the time. But they they've had long and successful careers because they are, don't have the ego that they can't recognize when they're wrong to be able to stop that trade sooner and keep the ones where they're right running longer. So making more from even less of the trade that they, that they have on. So it sounds simple when you explain it, but too many times people's ego get in the way and behavioral analysis comes into play and, and you're thinking, no, 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 it's going to turn around. It's going to be right. And something's changed out there in the marketplace. So you have to be aware enough and confident in yourself enough that to admit that you're wrong. And, and that's really the, the best thing. And I think that's applicable to life. I think you really, whether you're in pharmaceutical sales or you're in consulting, you're not always going to be right. And you have to make sure that you can appreciate the times when you need an extra set of opinion or a review, or you may not have the right angle on things and accept that and change direction and move on. Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic advice here. So just a few more questions as we wind down. And, and one I think is really enjoyable to hear from just about any guest I have on, but what would you do differently if uh, you were given the chance regarding your career here? Boy, I, I've had a fantastic career. So I, I don't know that I do too much differently, but I think a couple of things I would lean on early on was I would make sure I would get good mentors and mentors in a couple of different areas, both 
in my industry, in my company, outside my company, in the industry, and then in life in general. And I feel like those types of sounding boards, you almost have your little, they do it in the, I think it's the Wall Street Journal every week, the, your own board of directors, where you have sounding boards and slash mentors where you're able to say, well, this is what I'm thinking, and this is where I want to go. And doing those kind of things, I think from a career-focused standpoint, having those types of conversations with trusted advisors, super powerful and super important in, in my view. Certainly within your company, because they can help you navigate every every company, every institution has politics and that's part of it. But they can help you navigate some of that and help you achieve success within the company. But even outside that, I think sometimes it's good to have mentors and advisors outside of it that you can rely on to give you a little bit more advice. So I, I definitely took advantage of that, but I probably could have started it earlier in my career overall. Got it. And, and then the last question I ask everybody here, and honestly, this point might be a little bit mute after you just gave two amazing uh, facts there, you know, just tidbits, but just any parting advice to students, anything that you think they should know before we close out here? Always, no matter where you are in your job and, and whether you're in finance or you're in sales and trading or investment banking, it doesn't matter. Make sure that you're always learning. You're always asking questions. You're always growing. Your learning doesn't stop the day you get your diploma. Your learning, in fact, accelerates within your career. So you're learning that foundation to build on for the rest of your career. So keep reading, keep networking, keep learning continually, I feel like is is the most important thing. Because if you're not advancing your own skill set, you're kind of staying stagnant and everyone else is advancing theirs. Build your network. You have a great, fantastic base and start with it at Olin overall, but continue to build that throughout your career, both in your own company, as well as outside of that. I did mention the, the part about uh, mentors as well. And then I guess it goes along with, um, with learning and advancing your skill set overall, but just, just be curious, ask, ask questions, engage people in a polite, respectful way. And you'll be surprised what you learn both within your specific company, career, skill set, as well as outside of that. So, Yeah, awesome. Thank you for that, Bert. So now just last little bit here. And just again, I know we're, we're wrapping it up, but what is your, your role currently with the WCC and, and you know what, what have you been doing with with the career center. Sure. No, absolutely. So in the, in the last year I've transitioned into a couple of different roles. I am doing some part-time consulting for industry. I'm doing some part-time teaching at a local university um, near my home. And I'm also now part of the Western career center, as you mentioned with Weston, I'm a financial industry specialist where I'm focusing on some of the programming that they have for the finance industry within Weston, some uh, career coaching within students in both MBA, SMP, and BSBA um, space as well. And then I'm also tr trying to connect with a couple of um, my former colleagues as, as part of employee relations to enhance some of that Olin connection that we have overall. So I'm, I'm here to, uh, 
to work with the student body. I'm here to work with the rest of Weston to connect and advance as much as we can specifically for the, the students that are here. Okay. And how would any interested students get a hold of you? Sure. I think the best way to get me is, is really through my email account, which is my first name is Burton, B-U-R-T-O-N dot last name Schaefer, S-H-E-A-F-F-E-R at Worcester.edu. Got it. Thank you so much for your time, Bert. I really appreciate it. I think you're a fantastic addition to the WCC and, you know, I just really appreciate taking the time to, to, to talk with the club today. Awesome. Thank you very much, James. I really, really appreciate the opportunity and I had a great conversation. So thank you very much. If you've made it this far, thank you for listening in. If you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to the Finance Club leadership on LinkedIn or via Woosel email. And stay up to date on podcasts or live events. Join Owen Finance Club on Wugo, LinkedIn, or WeChat.